It Never Rains is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Did you know Pac-12 football ticket prices tend to drop right before the game starts? GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. Checking out is a breeze on the GameTime app. Once you've pinpointed the seats you want, simply click the listing and check out. It's that simple. Use the GameTime two-step checkout next time you're looking for great deals on tickets. So head to the App Store or Play Store now to download GameTime and score some awesome deals on last-minute tickets. Stop. It never rains at Austin Stadium. Hey, happy Monday, everybody. Tyson Alger here from The Athletic on the It Never Rains podcast. Aaron Fentress is out today. Luckily, we are joined by Justin Myers. He's the host of The Bridge on NBC Sports Northwest and a radio host on 620 AM here in Portland. Justin, the Ducks are 7-1. and one. They're leading the Pac-12 North. Where the heck's the excitement at? Yeah, I mean, the number seven team in the country, Tyson Alger. I mean, it's it's the one of the weirdest uh, feelings. I, I was thinking about this a lot after the game on Saturday, and then when I saw the you know the AP poll come out, and you see that Oregon's kind of moving up the rankings thanks to thanks to a couple of other upsets. I, I was trying to think: has there ever been a time when Oregon, in this kind of this this modern era of Oregon football, where they've been seven and one, undefeated in the Pac-12? I, I would say the clear favorite, along with Utah, but the clear favorite to win the Pac-12 conference right now and and still in the college football playoff discussion as we head from October to November, and I still don't know if the, this fan base has completely bought in on this program. It's it's an interest. I don't, don't want to say it's it's odd or weird, but it's an interesting situation that I see Oregon in. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating because – you know, same same buy-in is an interesting phrase because I, I don't think there's uh, – uh, I mean, obviously, these Oregon fans love seeing this team win and, and being undefeated and, and having, you know, a, a chance, albeit an outside chance, still at the playoff. I mean, they're they're all for that. But uh, here we are. It's it's We're rolling into November here. Oregon just won a game on a walk-off kick from a, a player who they probably never would have expected – uh, to come up in that sort of clutch situation. And it, it still feels, I mean, I'm in Portland this morning, and so maybe it's different in Eugene, but it just still feels just a little bit muted around here. And and this is even compared to like the 2014 season when they had that like first or that second month loss to Arizona. Like, like this Oregon team right now has done pretty much everything better than that team. I'm not saying this team's, this Oregon team's better than that one, but in terms of hype, it, 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 it just feels a little weird right now. And there's a couple of things I, I, I thought of. Um, I think first and foremost, you have to go back and kind of look at what this fan base has kind of been put through the last four seasons. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, it, if you go back and look, and Oregon fans, when Chip Kelly left and, and went to the NFL, and I think a lot of Oregon fans maybe, maybe lied to themselves and said they were okay with it and that we'll be fine. We, we're, we're all in on Mark Helfrich and – to Mark Helfrich's credit, two years later, had them playing in the national championship game. And then things kind of started unraveling. 2016 was a tough season to get through. You have to fire not just Mark Helfrich. And I know we talked about this last time I was on this podcast, but not only Mar- Mark Helfrich, you had to fire like just decades and decades of coaching experience. 
And then I think a lot of Oregon fans, when Willie Taggart came in, said, okay, we're going all in on this guy. And it was all obvious that Willie Taggart was not all in with this fan base because uh, he was gone in a year. And I think with Mario Cristobal, I think Oregon fans have been just kind of hesitant to jump all in on this program. I'm not saying that they don't love their team. I'm not saying the, that they aren't excited, like you mentioned, about big wins. But in terms of completely emotionally buying in, getting burned a couple of times with, with Helfrich and, and, then, uh, and then with Willie Taggart, I think it's kind of, kind of kept Oregon fans, let's say, in the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> you know, like they're, they're in the pool. But I think they're in the shallow end. They're not quite ready to jump off that high dive yet. I, I think the Helfrich thing was fascinating because I I think there was a, a natural kind of trust there from Oregon fans in, in saying like, hey, this guy was kind of like the handpicked guy from Chip. He's local. He's, he's, he's from the state of Oregon. Like even if he gets really big time, he's probably going to stay here. And while Mario Cristobal has said absolutely nothing that makes you think that he's looking anywhere else other than Oregon. I, I think there's just still a little bit of that, um, you know, coming off, coming off a Taggart who has had, who had less success here than Chris Ball's already had uh, jumping for that first job in Florida state. I, I think there's a little bit of uh, Hey, you know, like let's, let's wait and see and, and, and see how, how committed you guys actually are here. And, and, but like I said, I'm not trying to say they're not committed. I just think that's a little bit of the scorned Oregon fan going like, hey, like we've been through a lot here lately. Well, and here's the other thing uh, I kind of want to talk about because y- you look at where Oregon is right now. They would have to completely fall over themselves to not make the Pac-12 championship game. I mean, I mean as we sit right now, I believe they have oh, it, it a would be three-game epic. lead over, over everybody. It would be an epic collapse, which <laughs> – I, I mean, I just don't see happening. So so Oregon's going to win the Pac-12 North, and they're going to play for a chance to win the conference championship. And, and it's interesting, you go back 10 years ago with a team in 2009 that ended up playing in the Rose Bowl, lost their first game, and had to kind of, with a new coach, and kind of had to win back the fan base. But at some point in 2009, the fans kind of got all in with, with Chip Kelly and bought in on that team. And, and I'm not sure if, if this year's fan base is quite there yet. Now, a couple of trips to the national title game will do that to a fan base right. where your expectation level is a little bit higher. 2009, the Rose Bowl was, I think, everything and anything that Oregon fans could even possibly dream of. Little did they know they were going to be playing against Cam Newton, the national title game the next year. But also, I think, Tyson, what do you think about the fact that that Oregon team with Chip Kelly had an identity, right? They played fast. They were the fastest team to snap the ball in the entire country. They scored lots of points once they kind of got things rolling after that Boise State debacle. Uh, Fans found out who LaMichael James was that year. But they had an identity. It was this young offensive uh, coach who was pushing the boundaries of what you could do offensively, as opposed to this team that just seems to find ways to win, yeah. but they don't quite know what to hang their hat on yet. That That's the fascinating thing for me, because for the first six, seven weeks of the season, we all thought that identity was this defense. You know, this was, this was a team that had allowed less than 10 points in five straight games. They, they, went several games in a row without allowing a touchdown and and, and we were all kind of all in on the uh, Andy Avalos train and and talking about like hey like this was a great year from him it, too bad he'll probably be coaching somewhere as a head coach next year and and that's 
the breaks have really been pumped on that over the last two weeks as, as they've given up their two two worst games uh, defensively of the year. So, um, but at the same time, that's when the offense clicked in. So it, it's there's not a consistent theme with this team right now. And, and even if you want to kind of like talk about how Cristobal likes likes to build up the lines and likes to play that kind of pounding style of football, you know, we haven't consistently seen that really this year either. And so I I think the only really identity and you know, frankly, if you're this football team, it's the only one that really matters is they're actually kind of clutch. I mean, this is two weeks in a row where they've they've come back and won. And and while they haven't looked perfect in every single game, you can go back to like Stanford and Cal. They they do like they, they don't really choke late in games. They, they, they definitely are are able to close out some of these games where, you know, probably this team last year or maybe the year before and, and definitely in the the tail end of Helfrich's years, they just didn't feel like they knew how to win games. They know how to win games this year. It's just seems like it's in a different fashion every week. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I'm trying to think of like when the last time Oregon football has kind of been through this, you have to, I think you have to go all the way back to, to the Joey Harrington years. I mean, Joey Harrington was, you know, he was captain comeback. And I know Joey has, has a story he loves to tell where there was finally a game where, where Bilotti broke and said, you know, you don't have to wait till the second half every every week or the fourth quarter right. because they that that team was incredibly clutch. But when you go back to you know, the chip years or even in, in 2014, you've now seen Oregon in back-to-back weeks come back to win in the second half. It was now just a one-point comeback in the fourth quarter uh, this last Saturday, but it was still a come-from-behind win. And a come-from-behind win down big, down double digits on the road against Washington – and so we haven't seen that before, right? I mean, when, when was the last time, you know, or, or at all in the Chip Kelly era or in the Mark Helfrich era, kind of combining the two, where Oregon really had that that come from behind victory, like everything was going against them, right. and they came back and pulled it out the end, and they've now done it two weeks in a row. Well, it was it was either they're winning by forty points, or they would have a game where like Marcus had his his leg problem and, and something was hobbling them up. You know, they just were never in a position like that. That brand of football, if they were going to win a game, it was going to be by a lot of points, and if they weren't, it was just going to be because something something came up. You know, or or they had that Stanford problem or, or that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and kind of getting back to to what we were talking about, Tyson. What where does like the college football playoff kind of factor into all this because I was four years when I was on the radio in Eugene, I was adamant that college football needs a playoff and, and people warned me old school guys talked about how it's going to, you know, it's going to ruin kind of what, what we already know in college football. We already like the system that it is. And I'm not sure that the playoff has ruined it, but all of the discussion right now, at least at, can talk about with Oregon fans is not about winning the Pac-12. It's not about winning uh, the Pac-12 North or going to the Rose Bowl. Um, it, to be perfectly honest, and I, I'll keep their name anonymous, but <laughs> I was I, I was with a group of friends talking about you know talking about where this Oregon team was after Oklahoma lost and and kind of where they fit in the college football playoff and and I was like yeah but they're one win away essentially from the Rose bowl. And there was an Oregon fan. that was like, yeah, but the Rose bowl sucks. Yeah. But that's like to, to, to think that, to think that an Oregon fan ever would think, yeah, but it's just the Rose bowl, that, but that's kind of what it's become. That, that I don't think that's a product of the playoff though. I think that's a, a product of spoiled Oregon fan who went to four 
New Year's Six Bowls in, in four years under kind of the Chip Kelly and Helfrich era. And I mean, you even had the players back then. Who was it? Was it D'Anthony Thomas that was, was like, yeah, it's just another Rose Bowl. I, I think that's more of a product of that era than it is the actual playoff. Because if like, let's say, uh, let's say Cal is in Oregon spot right now. I, I would imagine Cal fans would probably be pretty stoked about like if they were in the discussion for the Pac-12 North title or, or the Rose Bowl. Like I, I think most Oregon fans are probably realistic that they're not going to be making the play. I mean, there's still an outside chance and a lot has to happen, but I don't. I don't think fans really think that this is a playoff team at this moment. And I, I, some of it might just be the card ahead of the horse here. And the fact that Oregon's wrapped up the Pac-12 title here in October, and there's just not really that drama to it, right? I'm not Pac-12 title, the North title, but there's just not that drama to it right now. I, I think there's still just a lot of carryover of, of spoiled 2010 Oregon fans. I think that's some of it. I, I also think yeah, we all have to be realistic about what the Pac-12 is, right? When, when you look at the conference... It's the conference of champions. It is the conference of champions, absolutely. I, I got the uh-huh. press release too, Tyson. Um, we, we, we are, we are, <laughs> you got the talking points. We are required yeah. multiple times when you mention the Pac-12 that it, to determine that it is the conference of champions. But if you are being realistic, I, I mean, I think the conference is getting better. I, I, I don't think it was as bad as it was last year as everybody wanted to make it out to be. I think it, it's got some issues because of coaching turnover, which is kind of settling in. Um, I think you're seeing that with, with UCLA and Oregon State especially. But when you are realistic about the Pac-12 right now, is a Pac-12 conference title in this year kind of doesn't hold as much weight as maybe right. back in 2009. And here's the other thing. I, I've talked about this before, and I'll throw it out to you. Tell me if you think and you feel free to tell me that, that this case holds no water and that I'm out of out of my mind, which you've done multiple times. You, you know I will. Um, but how much of this is the fact that to win the Pac-12, Oregon will likely face Utah in the Pac-12 championship game, and some people just don't quite see Utah as a Pac-12 team. Right. Pac-10, it's Pac-10 bias. And then just Utah is the newbie, and they just don't quite see them as, say, a USC team that they would face in the Pac-12 championship. I 100% agree. I, I think I think Utah is consistently, and you could even make this argument for their basketball team too. Like they're always a team that's never talked about in the offseason. They always end up in the top 25, and, and they always are kind of right there at the end. And, and I think past Utah teams, past Utah teams didn't really kind of fit the Pac-12 mold. You know, they were they were kind of a, a slower offense that that really survived on that defense. And, and while this Utah defense is excellent this year, I, you know, I, I right now it's, it's, it's them in Oregon as one and two in this conference. They actually have a pretty damn good offense, too. Huntley's been been playing amazing for them. Um, but I, yeah, I just I just think um, from a national perspective, people go like, oh, like it's Utah, like the Pac-12 must be bad this year if 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 Utah's ahead of the USC's or, um, yeah, I I don't think there's really a, another team in that entire South Division that would get any respect other than than USC from a national level, maybe maybe other than UCLA just because it's another LA school, but I I think that's just a a product of of kind of uh, yeah. I don't want to say East Coast bias, but regional bias of, of people just not say it. Up. Say it, Tyson. Yeah. It, it, it is uh. East Coast, East Coast elitist bias. They don't <sighs> even know that Utah is in the Pac-12. I bet you, if you polled educated college football fans in the Southeast and on the East Coast, I don't even know if they would understand that Utah is a Pac-12 team because I, 
you look at, oh, the Pac-12 is down. The Pac-12 of the Power Five is the last. Well, the Pac-12's number one team in the North is seven in the country. And the number one team in the South, both of which, by the way, have one loss, is number nine in the country. They have two top 10 teams in the country. I just wonder if it would be USC or even, say, Arizona State sitting there at number nine in the country. Maybe the Pac-12 would have a little bit of a different perception nationally if if it was arizona state i think definitely because not that arizona state's necessarily a team that has that that national reputation but they have a they have a head coach that i guarantee if they were in the top 10 there would be every single espn reporter and and tom rinaldi would be out there pulling heartstrings on everybody just because (laughs) because he's he he's that type of coach who's going to give a good quote and, and they're familiar with like kyle whittingham at utah I think that guy is one of the most underrated. I said this just a second ago, but he's one of the most underrated coaches in the country. He routinely just pumps out good football teams. You know, they're not necessarily that top echelon a team that we that we haven't seen that team yet, but they're always damn good. And um, he's just not that talkative, you know, big media personality type that that's going to you know get your team some headlines even when uh, kind of in those off weeks like like Hermwood. I, I think. Arizona State would be an absolute media darling if they ended up actually putting that thing together. Yeah, I think so. And you know, Utah is one of, one of those teams that they've they've had to prove since they've come into the conference. I mean, I joke about Pac-10 bias, but it is there because Utah, like the Pac-12, has to prove to the to the country that Utah is good and it belongs to the conference. And Utah kind of has to prove to the Pac-10 people, like you know, goofballs like me who still see them as a Mountain West team trying to play with with the big boys here on the West Coast, that, that they belong. And they finally got over the hump last year by winning the South. Uh, but I, I think it's that that ability to prove that they can compete week in and week out. And, and this year, they are doing it. I, I thought it was a little bit overblown earlier in the year to say they were a college football playoff team. But if we're going to discuss Oregon as a potential college football playoff team with their loss being neutral site to uh, to Auburn, Utah, if they run the table and go one loss at USC, USC is not the USC of old, but still a loss at USC and then bouncing back and running the table, then I guess you absolutely have to discuss that with Utah. Well, what, what, what's crazy is is neither neither Oregon or Utah have wins that really kind of register on the national level right now. So both are kind of depending on the other to run the table into that Pac-12 title game where that would be the big win for both of those programs. Now, Oregon has the better loss because it was the neutral thing at, at, at Auburn. But for like you just said, anybody dismissing Utah's chances needs to look at Oregon's resume and realize Oregon doesn't have any better wins on their schedule either. I mean, I mean, Utah's right there. All right, guys, we quickly want to give the floor to our good buddy Dave Damashek for the Football Fact Check podcast to talk about his new show. Hi and hello, Dave Damashek here. Quick question. Do you like football? Good then you're going to like Football Fact Check as we dig in with a free show every Monday open to the entire world and for subscribers only on Wednesday, all the NFL game picks for the coming week. Make sure you check it out. Football Fact Check, including some of our colleagues here at The Athletic and uh, our good cast of fellas here chopping it up, hooey and applesauce, pro football. Let's talk about it. Football Fact Check. Just switching gears for a second, because you, you said something uh, a little bit ago that kind of caught, caught my ear a little bit, just talking about how over the last two weeks, Oregon has had these comeback wins and they're kind of putting together clutch performances late. Has the last two weeks where 
the Ducks came back from 14 against Washington, and then they had that last-minute drive against Washington State. Has this done anything to change your opinion of just Justin Herbert's legacy here? Because before these two games, if, if someone 10 years from now were to go back and pull up like the college football sports reference and look at the stats, Herbert was going to be at the in like the top three spots of just about every offensive organ category in the books. You'd look back and be like, man, that guy, that guy put together a really good career. He just didn't quite have a couple of those a couple of those performances yet. But now here two weeks in a row in two very pivotal games, he put together that four, uh, that second half performance against Washington where I, I think, what was it? Four touchdowns, zero, not, not four f- touchdowns in the second half, but four touchdowns in the game. And then this week where his touchdown streak actually ended, but he was five for five on that final drive. He hit on Johnson for a couple setting up, uh, setting up that Camden Lewis kick has, has these two weeks, what has, what have these two weeks done for Justin Herbert's Oregon legacy here um I, I think the win at washington i think over time people are going to to bring that up more and more that you know that that's one of those wins that you kind of put away and and it's gonna it, it's gonna grow and grow and grow i think when he moves on to the nfl people are gonna look back and talk about that washington win i think the reason that it wasn't as big is because i think a lot of people we're very afraid this week was going to come back and bite Oregon. And right. it darn near did. That's a good point. Um, and so I think that's why that Washington win in terms of kind of a signature win, a legacy win for Herbert, I think now is going to continue to grow and grow because they're going to have at least a Pac-12 North championship. And if they beat Utah, can play in the Rose Bowl. That I, I think that tremendously adds to the legacy, right? I, I think not fair to Herbert. Coming into this season, I think Oregon fans expected 13-0 and in the college football playoff. I mean, at bare minimum, he's sitting in the Heisman Trophy uh, room when it's presented. And I don't know if that was entirely fair. I mean, I think you look at... Do you think Oregon of, fans actually be- believe that, though? Or was it kind of the... Everyone's kind of putting the numbers together and be like, okay, we got a fourth-year starter here. He's put up numbers. This guy should be in the Heisman conversation, but really, like, I, I feel like there's... It's, there's been a a slowness to embrace everything that Herbert is, if that, if that makes sense. To, to me, I think uh, I look back at kind of Dennis Dixon. I know I keep going back, but it's like, you yeah, know, I know, think that's, Oregon that, fans kind of do. Yeah, it's what I do. That's what happens <laughs> when you get old. You just start, oh, you know, about 10 years ago or 12 years ago. But I think, you know, the Dennis Dixon senior year, I, I think kind of, Set an unreal kind of and then finally the offense and it'll click to senior year. And we've seen that too with other guys in, in the Pac 10. Uh, Carson Palmer kind of comes to mind, a guy who kind of put it together his senior year. And I think a lot of Oregon fans kind of expected that huge jump because we've seen it before between junior year to senior year. And I don't know if it's happened, but again, I don't know if that's fair to Herbert because you go back and look at the play calling against Washington State. And this is not going to be a, a slam of, of Arroyo in the play calling because while that's Oregon fans' favorite thing to do, I thought they were exactly right in the way they attacked Washington State. They, they were able to run the ball. C.J. Verdell had a humongous game. And with that, they controlled the clock and kept Washington State's offense off the field, which it was a huge, huge part of why this game was close at the end. Washington State's offense was absolutely clicking in this game. And Oregon controlling the clock and controlling the amount of possessions. But with that, you sacrifice kind of 
Herbert's mojo. Right. You he had to turn around and hand the ball off until it was time his time to shine. So in terms of of legacy, I, I think we haven't quite gotten that one big moment for him yet. That that game winning touchdown. He threw a game winning game winning drive together, which was great. Um, but I, I just think Herbert's legacy is going to be one that in five years Oregon fans are going to look back and it's going to grow and grow. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think that's exactly right. And and you can make the case too that if if, if Herbert would have happened ten years ago at Oregon, it, it would be a completely completely different conversation too. But I I think you know as we talked about how this team got spoiled at, in the earlier part of this decade, you know everyone's just kind of Marcus Mariota's the standard, and there, that was still so recent uh, in terms of of Oregon history that I, I think that's kind of the the stick everyone measures against and. Hey, Her- Herbert's having a fantastic season. I, what is he like? Twenty-two touchdowns, one interception. He's completing seventy percent of his passes. Those are really good numbers, and he's got—he's leading the number seven team in the country right now. Um, he's not going to win the Heisman, but that's—that's that's okay. You know, that's okay. He's—he's he's pretty good. And and you think about this from from kind of a, you know talk about legacy and history perspective. I, in, in kind of the modern era, and when I kind of judge Oregon football, I essentially go from when I was born, and that's just the, the modern era. But really, since, since Kenny Wheaton <laughs> made the pick, but, I mean, you, you can look at the, the actual true, all kidding aside, the modern era of Oregon football, in my mind, 94, you could push it back to 89, which was still a, a very big year. But 94 on, you know, it's kind of that there have been five quarterbacks to win the pack the conference five. I mean, that's, that's, that's a small number of guys to win the conference. And so uh, if Herbert does that this year, that kind of puts him in elite company in this, in this program. Most definitely. All right. So switching gears here, just to, to finish out, um, I just want to bring this up because I, I, it was a cool moment for me to see uh, last week, you and I, and, and our good buddy, Jeff uh, Smith, we, uh, we went and watched uh, game one of the world series at uh, revolution hall in, uh, in Southeast Portland. And uh, it was an event put on by the Portland diamond project. And uh, you know, they, they kind of had meet and greet sort of stuff with, with some of the PDP folks. And uh, uh, one of the guys uh, up there kind of talking and doing autographs and all that was uh, uh, Dale Murphy, who is, is your, uh, kind of childhood favorite baseball player. And uh, I was I was just thinking about this yesterday because, you know, we, we're in a business where we meet so many athletes and coaches and all that. And, and I think it has kind of, um, I don't want to say like soured our, our opinions on, on, on uh, sports and everything, but it, it kind of takes away a little bit of that, that kind of star factor. But I, I think for all of us, there's always still kind of like that, those one or two athletes that either you liked as a kid or, or, or whatnot, who you still get a little bit uh Goosebumps isn't the right word, but just like, you know, you get a little speechless with when you meet him and, and, and you, and you got to meet Dale Murphy, uh, last week, just, uh, you know, what was that as, as someone who's had a career in sports? What, what was that kind of moment like for you? I'm, I'm just curious because it was, it was cool to see. It was really weird because I, I remember the first part of my career, like, um, interviewing Mike Bellotti, you would get a little bit nervous because I grew up an Oregon fan and, and then eventually you you talk to them so much that you just, and you know, this Tyson, you, you kind of stop getting starstruck a little bit and you're just around athletes all the time. And, and every once in a while, somebody will just kind of, something will kind of happen. And this one, like I was nervous at a point that I hadn't been nervous before. 
<laughs> it was it was, it was like kind of going back and being a kid. Now, if I was seven years old and in that moment, I would have I probably wouldn't have been able to talk. And I was I thought I was able to keep my cool enough to where we were having a conversation. But yeah, this was the guy that you know when I was growing up and playing uh, playing little league, we had the gloves with the with the signatures in them, and so. Yep. So yep, yep. Dale Murphy was the guy I had to search through the bin to find a glove with the Dale Murphy autograph in the palm because I was not playing with anybody else's glove on my hand. I wore one batting glove because Dale Murphy wore one batting glove, not two, just one. Um, and so it, it was kind of it was kind of a weird moment to be a 40 year old grown adult kind of, kind of getting nervous to meet another grown adult. Right. But it was uh it was a lot of fun, but here, here's the other thing. So there, this is what maybe some people don't know about our industry and being like in the media and, and being more importantly being in the press box. There is nothing that media members love more than getting to give crap to other media members for stuff. We yep, a hundred percent. We love it, and so there are plenty of there's there's times where you see. These iconic guys who are, they're either calling games or up in the press box for one reason or another. And if we were to ever see anyone get a picture, we would instantly just trash them over and over and over again, sometimes in good fun, sometimes not. Uh, but as a, as a media member, you got to kind of pick and choose who is worth taking that ribbing from to get a good picture because you know you're going to have to take it unlike every other fan who gets to you know they see uh you know dale murphy walking or they can get a picture nobody's going to mess with them in the press box or somewhere else you know you're going to take it so i'm asking you tyson who would be that guy for you that if they showed up in the austin stadium press box or next week in la lots of stars in la at the coliseum press box who would be worth it for you to get a picture with knowing that for the rest of the game, somebody's going to be messing with you. Well, well, first of all, we should point out that uh, you went the completely ethical way here and we were fans at, at that, at this thing, but um, yes, man, that that's a tough one. I, uh, I, I've told this, I've, I think I told this story in, in one of our first podcasts, but like my, my very first like week as an intern at the Oregonian Ventress and I went up to cover a Mariners game or it was, and they had told me like a week before it was going to happen. And at that point, Ken Griffey Jr. was still on the Mariners, who was, um, yeah, I, I was born in Seattle before I moved up to Alaska. I mean, he was, uh, that's the reason I fell in love with baseball. He requested to be traded to the Reds on my 10th birthday. I cried, you know, thanks, thanks, Junior, but I, I forgave him eventually. Um, and I remember uh, we're, we're getting ready to go up there. And the day before we went up there was, when he just took off. If, if people don't remember how Griffey retired, he just left. He, they had the whole like sleep gate thing. He was sleeping in the locker room. There was a story that came out in the TNT. And then a couple weeks later, he just took off mid season. The Mariners were bad. He was bad. It was probably the best way for it to happen. And so Ventress and I show up like the next day and I'm like walking in the locker room and they still have his locker there. Like it's still got his nameplate on it. There was some stuff in it. And there was part of me that was relieved because it was like, Oh, okay, cool. Like I'm in a professional setting. I don't have to get all clammed up, you know, talking to a guy that, you know, I've had, I have his jersey hanging up in my room, but there was definitely that disappointment because you, you know, you don't get to run into these people all the time. So uh, I, I think it was, it was definitely, it would definitely probably be him. 
And uh, the only other time that I've gotten like really starstruck around an athlete, I was covering uh, a Vancouver Canadians uh, single A baseball game up in Vancouver. And uh, Trevor Gretzky was playing for the Boise team who was playing against Vancouver. And we're, I was up in the press box and uh, uh, my uh, uh, my now wife and I, we were walking because she, she came up for the trip and was taking photos um, for the story I was working on. We were going down this stairwell, which is like definitely a single wide stairwell. And at the bottom of it is Wayne Gretzky, who's coming up. And so like we stood to the side and like Wayne came up and he's just like, hey, how are you guys doing? And both me and my wife were like, whoa, like couldn't get out any English. He opened the door for us, said, hey, thanks. Have a nice day. And then we just kind of walked off. And that was that was the last time that I was really like, I, I have nothing to say. I, I, I can't do it. <laughs> It, it was interesting you brought up uh, the Mariners. The, the reason I, I realized the uh, the you don't take pictures with people in the in the press box one is it's just kind of a working environment. But I mean, we say working environment, but I mean, there's halftime hot dogs for crying out loud. I didn't have um, I didn't have one this week. I held out. I was good. I I, I, I respect I respect your strength, Tyson. I, I did not share in it because I had one and it was delicious. Yeah, yeah. But I I remember there was a game where Harold Reynolds was up in the press box at Oregon. And uh, big, big again, I'll, fan, I'll Harold the, Reynolds. I'll, I'll leave the names out of it, but some poor kid <laughs> went and got a picture <laughs> with Harold Reynolds and, and may have had to deal with uh, a lot of comments. Some may or may not have been coming from the other host of this show. Uh, <laughs> <Aaron> <laughs> So, so you learn real quick that like, okay, if, you, if you're going to take, if you're going to do a, a picture. So the only other time I did that, it was kind of a professional setting, but I was, uh, we were at the Fiesta Bowl, uh, 2012 season. So 2013 Fiesta Bowl. And my co-host at the time, uh, Steve Cannon, I know you recently finally got the call of the big leagues, be on Steve's show down in Eugene. Big, big time. Um, uh, but me and Steve, uh, we were down on the on the sidelines pregame, and and Steve loves Modern Family, the show Modern Family loves, and there was Ty Burrell, aka Phil Dumphy, and so I kind of pressed him to go get a picture. I was like, dude, just go get a picture, and then uh, I also got a picture with Ty Burrell and Ahmad Rashad, instantly on the field, posted on Facebook. And then get up in the press box, and and there's everybody. Oh, hey, nice picture with Ty Burrell. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, your mistake was posting it straight to fo- social media. There, I mean, that that was back in Facebook's heyday too, when when people actually checked that site and 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 regarded it as as the uh, the holy record. So, but before it completely destroyed democracy, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it, was, it, exactly. was, it was great. Uh, well, uh, speaking of destroying democracy, it was uh, it was a pleasure having you on today. Uh, I think, uh, Aaron should be back, uh, on Friday, you know, thankfully, um, you know, we, we, we don't have to wear out your right arm, you know, too, too hard here early in the season. So, um, but yeah, re- really appreciate you taking the time today, Justin. That was, that was a lot of fun. I told you last time I was on, I was going to Wally Pip, Aaron Fentress. It may not have happened that fast, but I'm telling you, uh, he hears the footsteps. <laughs> he does. He hears them and he wants no part of them. <laughs> uh that's awesome all right well hey everyone this is uh thanks again to justin myers you can find him uh on your tv on your radio he's he's everywhere he's on justin what's your twitter handle uh justin myers 541 so uh 
Justin M Y E R S five four one. All right. Well, that's Justin. I'm Tyson. I'll be back on Friday for our episode exclusively for athletic subscribers. We got USC coming up on deck, and uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be back on Friday. So thanks, everyone. Mm-hmm.